everyone. Welcome to episode 171 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And I thought I'd start today with a poem. We haven't had a poem lately. Yesterday, I was at Breakwater Books, which is our local independent bookstore, and this book caught my eye on the shelves in the poetry section. It's The Historians by Evan Boland, who is a Irish writer. Her dates were 1944 to 2020. This poem is called Margin. I picked it up and I just was browsing through it and browsing. I just couldn't put it down. So yeah, it came home with me. So Margin. Yesterday, I read about the hawk moth, common enough in the west and south of this island, how it can slow its brain down at the end of the day so as to see better in failing light. Today, I waited for the April cloudiness to turn dark. I walked out in our neighborhood as hills slipped into the horizon. How will we see inside it our own dusk? Flags rising, memories failing, no one left to say who those men in the photograph are. Old quarrels clothed in hundred years of heat, now shivering in the cold. I walked on past lighted windows, drawn curtains. It was colder now, and the intimate, unsettled colors showed me up, a transient, a woman dressed for warmth telling the island to myself, as I always have, so as to see it more clearly. Not the land of fevers and injuries, but the region I found for myself, described for myself in my own language, so I could stand, if only for one moment, on its margin. Mm. Wow. That is not where I thought that was going to go. I think I was just thinking about you and your studies and stuff, so I was thinking the margin of a page. I thought it was going to be more literal than that. Wow. Yeah. Well, I think that's what she's saying. It's right. like, yeah, like, and she talks about land and seeing and Plato's version of seeing. And yeah, I just, I can't wait to really dig into this collection. Again, it's the historian's poems by even Boland. Wow. Nice. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, before we get into our regular segments, we do have some thank yous to some Patreons. Yeah, we have a couple new people joining our community. And we keep saying this incorrectly. It's like your new patron, Patreon words. It's confusing. Yeah. We appreciate you. We totally do. We love your support. And we want to thank Jan, Andrea, and Joan for signing up. Thank you so much. And then also Lisa, who upped her monthly donation. Right. And a reminder, you can do that. You can step in at a certain amount, step back out, increase, decrease. And we do have little gifts that you get depending on the level that you join at. We have some lovely Book Cougars bookmarks. We have a little notepad with sticky notes for your reading and more. So feel free to check out our Patreon page. Also, once you become a Patreon, you're automatically entered to win our monthly book giveaway. Right. Yeah. And we hope to do a bit more with Patreon in 2023 as we get more comfortable with the platform. So stay tuned. Yeah. So Chris, what are you currently reading? Well, I was looking for something that would grip me because I'm in the midst of this last week of the semester. But it's like, I have to have something exciting to read or else what's the point of life? (laughs) (laughs) We get crabby people. (laughs) Exactly. So I came across a new book that's coming out next year. It's coming out February 21st, The Writing Retreat by Julia Bartz, B-A-R-T-Z. This is a debut novel 
It's like horror, mystery, and it just sounded so good. And, you know, I got a copy approved through NetGalley and started reading it. It hooked me right away. It's about a young woman named Alex who's had a falling out with her BFF. They're both new writers having other jobs. They were working at this academic publisher doing textbooks and things, but they're wanting to be fiction writers and they have this falling out. And they're both huge fans of this horror writer named Rosa Vallow, who is hugely famous and dark and mysterious and originally from Hungary and writes these gripping horror novels about women. And she offers this month-long retreat for, I think, four or five women. And Alex gets accepted kind of like in a surprising way. So they're all at this woman's huge mansion way out in the country and I think upstate New York. And when they get there, it's not just a writing retreat where they're going to casually work on stuff. Rosa Vallow tells them, you're going to write a novel while you're here mm-hmm. for the whole month of February. So they have 28 days. Yeah, to it's write also a novel. like the shortest month of the year. Right? <laughs> they have to write 3,000 words a day to hit the goal that she's outlined for them. They have a daily workshop, and then they have to have dinner together and drinks and all this kind of stuff. So it's really twisty. There have been some creepy moments, you know, but a lot of it is that psychological crap that can happen with friends where you're second-guessing yourself and wondering what the hell happened and what's going on. It got a starred review from Kirkus, and I'm sure there are more to come on that, but they said the book's pacing, a slow roll of dread and horror, is exceptional. A Perfect Winter Night's Haunting. Mm. So really enjoying it so far. I'm maybe like 40% in at this point. The only thing I'm kind of eh, about is there's a story within a story because there's snippets of what she's writing. Mm. Those are kept short, which is great, but it's a historical story set in the 19th century based on women who had lived in this house. So lots of different types of hauntings going on. Again, that's The Writing Retreat by Julia Bartz coming out next year. Wow, that sounds great. I can totally understand why you need to get something that grabs you when your mind's in lots of places. Totally. So I, too, am reading a book that comes out next year. It's called Enchantment, A Waking Wonder in an Anxious Age. This is by Catherine May. It comes out on February 28th. Catherine May also wrote the book Wintering, which I loved and continue to love and will probably start soon again. I think that's going to be a yearly listen for me. And I did mostly listen to Wintering, so it's interesting to be reading Enchantment. And she has it broken up into four sections, earth, water, fire, and air, which is very elemental, right? And she's writing a lot about the elements and how we can learn to kind of become re-enchanted with the world like we were when we were kids. So she's looking at all sorts of things. I am reading it on my Kindle and highlighting basically the whole book. I mean, it's getting to the point where it's a little ridiculous. I'm like, (laughs) oh, you need to just get a paper copy of this thing and really highlight and mark it up. But I'm loving it. She's such a enchanting writer, dare I say, really loving the way that the book is written. And I will read more from it once I finish it and decide which of all of the highlighting I should share. Really good book. Yeah. Again, it's called Enchantment, Awakening Wonder in an Anxious Age by Catherine May out February 28th. 
Awesome. Wintering is definitely on my radar to read in January. Yeah. And like I said, listening and reading is a great way to do that book. And I'm assuming Enchantment will be the same. It's just the audio is not available yet. Well, I'm rereading a book, uh, the library book by Susan Orlean. I read this a couple years ago when it first came out and loved it. I'm rereading it for book club. It's even, I don't know if I should say even better the second time around. Maybe it's just very different for me because now I'm in library school. I wasn't in library school when I was reading this. I've been interested in library history for a long time, though. People who don't know about this book, first of all, read it. Get it on your TBR and read it. It's about the L.A. fire that engulfed the L.A. Central Public Library in the 80s. And the way she describes the actual fire Oh my God, I, I wept a couple times already. Just really great writing. Like she really, you can really imagine and put yourself in these people's places as she's describing how they're feeling and what they're seeing. You can't really see much outside of the building, but just horrific describing the fire that's happening inside and why it was such an intense fire because of the architecture. Right. And it was kind of uh, overshadowed a bit because the same day that this library fire happened, which is the worst library fire in the history of the United States, was the same day that Chernobyl happened. So this didn't get a lot of national attention, at least not for several weeks. And then it didn't get much at that. The library book by Susan Orlean, I recommend it to everyone. Even if you're not a nonfiction reader normally, I think it would be one to try. Because uh, if you read a lot of fiction, you're a book lover, you might be a library lover as well. I know not everybody is. Susan talks in here about how as a kid, she was so infatuated with her local library and the outings she would do with her mom, and how she kind of lost touch with libraries, in part as a way to separate from her family and upward economic mobility, let her buy a lot more books. But she talks about how her love of libraries was I hate to say rekindled because that is a bad word to use when you're talking about a book about a library fire, but really enjoyable. Yeah, she's a great writer. And in the show notes, I will remind you what episode we talked about our biblio adventure we took to the New York Public Library main branch and went down to a really nice auditorium in the inner sanctum there and saw Susan Orlean talk about this book. We also had an Elizabeth Gilbert sighting in right. front of us, which was very yeah. exciting. Well, so. we actually chatted with her. Yeah. yeah. And the book itself is gorgeous. The book design, it's one of the more intensely designed books that the publisher put a lot of money into. And I should say it's also a bit of a true crime because there was a potential arsonist involved right. who she tries to kind of track down and figure out what actually happened. I'm also reading How to Love the World, Poems of Gratitude and Hope. So a little synchronicity with Chris finding a poetry book. I too found this at a bookstore when I was in Colorado. I find it found it at White River Books in Carbondale. And I just love the feel of this book. It's, a, it's a super sweet book. It's small. It's beautiful. It's got really heavy, thick paper. It's fun to read every day. And I'm doing a good job of keeping it out on my nightstand and reading it and discovering new to me authors, which I love. You wanted to say something? Oh, no, I just I wanted to ask you to rub the book again. Because, oh, because it sounds so nice. <laughs> 
Chris was standing, like I could tell she wanted to say something to me. Yeah, it has texture, Mm -hmm. the book. And it's edited by James Cruz. And it's put out by Story Publishing. That's S-T-O-R-E-Y. And I think they have several versions of these little books with different focuses. So this one is focused on gratitude and hope. And one of the things I really like is after some of the poems, they have a little moment of reflection where they pull out in pretty little border, a little reflective pause about the poem. And then they give you an invitation to write and reflect on it. I thought I'd read a poem by Danusha Lamaris, who I've read a poem from on the podcast before. This poem is called Improvement. The optometrist says my eyes are getting better each year. Soon he'll have to lower my prescription. What's next? The light step I had at six? All the gray hairs back to brown? Skin taut as a drum? My improved eyes and I walked around town and celebrated. We took in the letters of the marquee, the individual leaves filling out the branches of the sycamore, an early moon. So much goes downhill, joints wearing out with every mile, the delicate folds of the eardrum exhausted from years of listening. I'm grateful for small victories. The way the heart still beats time in the cathedral of the ribs and the mind, watching its parade of thoughts enter and leave, begins to see them for what they are. Jugglers, fire swallowers, acrobats, tossing their batons into the air. Wow. <laughs> love that. So I do love how, you know, like, the celebrating, well, there's one thing that's getting better, my eyeballs, you right? know, it's hilarious. Oh my god, I love that cathedral of the ribs. Yes. That's a great image. And so then in the reflective pause on the next page, They talk about how she breaks down improvement and celebrating this improvement and then suggest that you write your own celebration of a small victory in your life. So it's really a lovely way to be introduced to new poets, but also to have almost like a workbook of sorts if that's something you're interested in. Really loving it. Again, it's called How to Love the World, Poems of Gratitude and Hope, edited by James Cruz. That's a great idea to have those reflection prompts because I think more people want to be into poetry but they don't really know how to be into it or how to get into it and that sounds like a good way to explore the meaning of a poem and reread the poem several times as you think about your own reflection yeah 100 percent. but they also don't do it for every poem which I think would be kind of overwhelming mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> you know? then it might feel like a textbook yeah exactly <laughs> I'm back in school <laughs> well Emily, what have you just read? I finished a real page turner called Reef Road. This is by Deborah Goodrich Royce. And she is the wife of the couple that did the big renovation of Savoy Bookstore and Cafe. Oh, that's so cool. And United Theater across the street, which is where we got a chance to interview Andrea Wang and Debbie Machico Florence. And then several other, like the Ocean House in Rhode Island. I mean, they've done tons of huge projects like that. Unbeknownst to me, she's also an author. Wow, that's <laughs> great. And that cover is stunning. It's a great cover. Those are, what are those called again? I think um, those are passion flowers, aren't they? No, Birds of Paradise. Birds, right. Yeah, that's Birds what it is. Yeah. yeah. It's got this really, a cover that really grabs your eye because it's these beautiful birds of paradise, but then there's a black spider crawling across one of them. 
This is her third novel, and it comes out on January 10th. And the main theme of it is about collateral damage that's left behind after a violent crime. Deborah Goodrich Royce, the author, in real life, her mother lived in a neighborhood where there was a terrible murder of a young woman that was left unsolved. It was never solved, and she was her mother's friend. So there's a semi-autobiographical part of this novel because it's about now a writer who is the daughter of the woman whose friend was murdered. So in other words, the writer's mother was best friends with this young woman that was murdered at the age of 12. Mm. And the crime was never solved, but the number one suspect was her brother, the the woman who was murdered brother, not the mother's brother. (laughs) That was all very confusing. (laughs) So it's a somewhat meta book because it's about a writer writing a book about her neighbor and a crime that's taking place. It was really good. It was just the book that I needed. The two points of view are titled The Wife, and the other is titled A Writer's Thoughts. And for the most part, the writing just goes back and forth between the points of view, but then it's sometimes there'll be double chapters when the author wanted to focus on you know a certain segment of the story. And the time period is 2019 through 2020, so it goes through the COVID pandemic as well, which makes the book feel even more stuck. They're stuck in their homes. There's bad things happening and they can't get away from them. Kind of that kind of a feeling. Yeah, like being trapped. Yeah, Yeah. trapped, claustrophobic. Noelle is the writer character and she was actually named after the woman who was murdered, if that doesn't creep you out. So her mother's best friend's name was Noelle, who was murdered, and she names her daughter Noelle. So there's a little mind F for you. (laughs) (laughs) And then the other character, the wife, is Linda. And she becomes complicit in maybe some crimes. I do not want to spoil anything because this is definitely a book that you could spoil easily. And as we know, it's in the unfolding of the story that makes it fun to read. So I'm hoping to go to an event because she's a local author. She spends her time mostly in Rhode Island and hear why she decided to tackle this book. In the author's note, she does say that she felt like it was time for her to look at this story a little bit more closely, but makes it clear this is not the same as the story of what happened to her mother and her mother's friend. It was just kind of the inspiration. Mm. Yeah. Intense. Yeah. Wow. And I mean, again, going back to the theme of it being this collateral damage of someone is murdered 20 years ago, and still the ripple effect of what that caused. Because in this book, the woman who's the writer who's named after this dead woman, her mother was never the same. She was traumatized by this event, and then raised her daughter with that traumatic lens being afraid of the world and how she was going to raise her and that sort of thing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I really enjoyed it. Again, it's called Reef Road by Deborah Goodrich Royce. And this publishes on January 10th. Thank you to Post Hill Press for sending me a copy. Sounds good. You know, I guess books about writers, writers writing, they can be yawn worthy sometimes because mm-hmm. they, they are a little bit too maybe navel gazy or mm-hmm. something. But it sounds like the one you're reading, the one I'm reading are definitely not in that category. Yeah. 
They're very compelling and thought provoking. Yeah. And I mean, this one with the true crime element, it made sense to me the way it was written. Yeah. Well, I finished a novel, uh, The Foulest Things, A Dominion Archives Mystery by Amy Tector, which I talked about last time. It is out now. I think it just came out in October. And I seriously enjoyed it. It's about Jess Kendall, who's a junior archivist. She was a probationary position until she can prove herself before. And she hopes to get hired on permanently at the archives where she's working. And so there's that pressure. And her boss is not exactly the most consistent, helpful, supportive person. And there are a cast of other characters slash archivists who have their subject specialty working with her or not necessarily with her but around her because she has her own assignment that she is working on it actually starts at an auction an art auction where you know you definitely want to sit on your hands and not accidentally (laughs) scratch your nose right when they're uh in a bidding war but anyway she's in the art section where there's uh, the movable shelving you know and she's so she's trying to access something in the the shelf's not turning, it's stuck. And of course, you know, she looks and it's a dead body. Wow. So that's how things start. So the mystery is about, you know, why was this person murdered? And it's also related to the art. And then a story back in time during World War One era. And I don't want to give any spoilers, because I really enjoyed it. You know, as somebody who's currently in archive school, it's it was fun to read a book that seemed real, even though there's some questionable practices. And in the afterward, Amy mentions that, you know, the archive where I work in real life does not, you know, we actually... uh, (laughs) Caveat, we know what we're doing. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) So that was fun. And there's a second book in the series coming out in March of 2023. And that one is called Speak for the Dead. So I do look forward to reading that one again. There's a little bit of romance. So, you know, it was very satisfying because there's the archive factor, the research factor, the single woman trying to make it factor, the best friend, uh, a little bit of romance happening. It seemed to be one of those books that touched on all those little itches that I like to have scratched. Yes. Yeah. And it's fun to get in on a new series at the beginning. It really is. Yeah, it is. So this one and Alice Henderson and Marcy Rendon, like Mm -hmm. series that are just a few books in are are very nice and appealing. So again, that was The Foulest Things, a Dominion Archives mystery by Emmy Tector, available now. I finished a debut novel called Night Wherever We Go, and this is publishing on January 3rd out from Echo. It's by Tracy Rose Payton. It's 1852, and six enslaved women are living on a plantation in Texas. It is a plantation the owners have moved with their slaves from Georgia. They were kind of fleeing debtors. They were not doing very well, and they've moved to Texas, and they're doing no better. So they're trying to grow cotton and whatever else they can figure out how to grow in Texas. In 1852, Texas had separated from Mexico. And these six enslaved women refer to their owners as the Lucys, which is a nickname for Lucifer. Mm. Their real name is the Harlows. They're not kind people, the Harlows. They're very unkind to their slaves. These women, for the most part, they had to sell quite a few of their slaves, but these women came with them because the wife and the family actually owned them. 
And so there was something about, you know, the debtors went after the husband's wealth, but not hers. So she could take these women with her. Hmm. They had to leave a lot of the slaves. Their families were sold off separately. So some of them were there without their husbands or their children. It's a really difficult read, but it was also the first time I've read a novel about slavery that was really about a group of females bonding together to try to protect themselves and have body autonomy. Most of the books that I've read that are about slavery are also about the white slave owners sexually abusing the women if there is something to do with sex or impregnation of slaves. What's interesting about this book is, as horrifying as it is, I mean, this hadn't really occurred to me in reading in the past that these slaves are owned by this family and any offspring that they have also become property, right? right? And so if they're financially struggling, they see that as a potential financial benefit for these women to have babies because then they can potentially sell these children as slaves and make money. Horrifying, horrifying idea. But these women take it upon themselves to try to figure out a way that they won't become pregnant. And I'm not going to say any more. I don't want to spoil that part of the story. It was such a good book. Like I said, I've never read about slavery in the way that this book is written. I wrote down some of the themes as I was reading it. Historical significance in time, the power and control over the slave's body, you know, the way that it was written about was really different. And then defiance, the way that these women were trying to defy those that were in power over them. And love and loss at the same time, also, that occurred in some of these plantation settings. And the hardships of slavery, but from a very different vantage point than what I was used to reading. And repression, the way that repression came upon these slaves and also other different slaveholders interacting with them who maybe didn't treat their slaves poorly. I don't want to discount that they were still slaves, of course, but didn't think that physical violence was the way to have your slaves be productive on your plantation. So that was interesting as well. It's really hard subject matter, but the way that Tracy Rose Payton handled it, I thought it was just a really intriguing story. And I learned a lot. You know, when you get your hands on a book where you're like, oh my God, I was looking up words. There was so much I didn't know that I came away knowing from reading this book. It's great. Yeah. You know, that sounds to me a bit like my experience with reading All That She Carried by mm-hmm. Taya Miles. I mean, that was nonfiction, but just a very different perspective and interpretation of enslaved women's lives and what they did, what they tried to do to protect one another and how they carried on their lineage even when they were torn apart by their enslavers' economic decisions and circumstances. Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah, they'd probably be really good companion reads. I didn't think about that till yeah. just now. Yeah. Yeah, again, it's called Night Wherever We Go, out January 3rd. Um, I have read some reviews of it. There is, she does something very interesting. A writing style is that sometimes some portions of the book are specific to a character. You know, they're speaking in I language and then others she moves to the we, which didn't bother me at all because I felt like that's what she was trying to do was, you know, they were a group of women. They were also individuals, but they were a group of women 
handling a situation together. One of the reviewers had an issue with that and said it didn't work. To me, it was an interesting way to tell the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, and if it didn't take you out of the story, it sounds like it was a win for you. Yeah, Yeah. 100%. Yeah, I hope it does really well. Go out there and pre-order it, everybody. I want to check that one out. (laughs) So I also finished Michelle Obama's book, The Light We Carry, on audiobook. And I didn't go back to the very beginning as I thought I would, but I did go back and start listening to certain chapters. It is very different than Becoming. Becoming really felt like a memoir, taking us back in time to her childhood and then through the presidency. And this is more like, now I'm who I am. I'm middle-aged. I got some stuff to say, and I'm going to say it, you know. And I really enjoyed it. And this morning, I went back and listened to the chapter on friendship and her talking about how important her friends are and kind of making fun of herself how when she was first lady, she would invite a group of friends to Camp David. And she said she sold it to them as a little spa weekend. And they ended up calling it boot camp because she made them work out and eat right and all of that. So she talks about that. She also talks about friendships from college, and then also how hard it was to try to make new friends once she was the first lady. Oh, gosh, I can't imagine that. Yeah. And she tells this great story of what happens a lot of times is you make friends through your kids, your kids make a friend, and then maybe that parent comes to pick them up and slowly you develop a relationship. But she told this story of the first time Sasha had a friend over that in order for the friend to be dropped off at the White House, it wasn't trivial. Let's just say that. And what it was like for that mother to drop her daughter off. And then what a kerfuffle was created when Michelle said she wanted to walk the young girl out to the mother and let her know how the play date went, (laughs) you know, and also her awareness, like, I'd like to make a new friend, but I have to be careful now because people might want to be friends with me to get intel or gossip or something. So it was really interesting to hear her talk about all of her different friendships and how important her friends are. So that was just one of the many chapters. I really enjoyed it. If you liked Becoming, I think you'll like it, but it is different. Okay. Not a memoir. It's more like essays and conversational, but still more talking about certain categories of things. I did listen to it. She narrates again. I don't think I ever even picked up Becoming as a paper book Mm, I didn't it was all audio for me the couple times I listened and that's that's a book I know I'll listen to again at some point because it's soothing Mm -hmm. yeah and I felt the same way about this one and I probably will just keep listening to the audio I don't have any intention of getting the paper copy but it is out now did you go on any biblio adventures well, I have been pretty much chained to my desk, but I did uh, I did start watching the Three Pines TV series. I, I said I was going to wait until after the end of the semester, but I couldn't because I love, you know, Three Pines so much. And um, so they're releasing two episodes every Friday for X amount of weeks. And Laura and I watched the first two, well, then a third one, too. I really like what they've done with the introduction of new material. They are exploring a lot of the disappearance of indigenous women, the residential home, and the abuse. You know, it's a main part of the storyline. Inspector Lacoste is an indigenous woman, and I believe she's a white woman in the book. So I really like the new storylines that they've added I think they're missing the mark at this point on character development and also a sense of place. 
because the characters in a sense of place that's like the beating heart of louise penny's series so far it's darker and you know i kind of feel like there's so much darkness already out there to watch on tv i'm a bit disappointed about that Hmm. that it's not following more of the spirit of the books and that's not to say that louise penny doesn't have darkness but her darkness is usually balanced in a way that makes you feel like that it is balanced with joy and love even though there's a murder every book right there's a murder every book and like you know how people make fun of jessica fletcher and that she's a serial killer and you know people are starting to talk about three pines in the same way like yeah don't go there because you'll die right um anyway but i i know some people have been loving the new series so don't not watch it just because i'm questioning things at this point and it's still early on so the character development could kick in more. Mm-hmm. We'll see. In general, how did you feel about Alfred Molina as Inspector Gamache? You know, I really like him. I mean, as soon as I heard that he was going to be Gamache, I thought, oh, that's good. Mm-hmm. Because he has the look. So I do like him. And I think he's doing a, a fine job. My friend Sherry had mentioned that he frowns a lot, though. Mm. And you don't picture Gamache frowning quite as much. Because the character is known for never yelling or being cruel or grumpy. He's a very kind person in a way that isn't syrupy kind. So then when I watched the third episode, I paid attention more to his face (laughs) in that way. And I was like, yeah, you know, but I mean, we'll see. Do you think of Gamache as sexy at all? No. Okay. Because I do think Alfred Molina is kind of sexy. Do you? Yeah. 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 (laughs) Not to take it down to sex, but... (laughs) I'm just wondering, because I do think that, I mean, it's interesting. We've talked about this before. Like, I don't overly picture things in my head. Like, that's not what's so important to me when I'm reading something. And I remember when Twilight was all the rage and my daughter, Rachel, was reading it and she was sitting in my living room, I think with Shuli, our friend, author Shuli Kaywood, and one of my other friends from high school. And they started talking about Robert Pattinson playing the main character and they all were like oh my gosh and talking about what he they envisioned him looking like as they read the book and i was sitting there thinking i don't know if i ever feel that way when i'm reading a book you know mm-hmm. and they were up in arms about him playing that character so i was wondering if you felt that way at all about alfred molina i mean i think it depends on the book really when mm-hmm. it comes to choosing an actor to depict them because i think some books are series rely very heavily on how the person looks Mm -hmm. and how they dress and how they smell and all those factors. So I think for me, Three Pines is one of those Mm -hmm. where it's just like, you know, if they chose some blonde haired, blue eyed actor to play Gamache, that would not have worked at all. Yeah. But I think Molina, he has the darker look and there's just something warm about him. Mm -hmm. Well, I also finished from scratch based on the novel by Tembe Locke. And I liked it. I mean, I did think that the memoir was more robust about the story itself. And it's always hard to know what someone's experience is going to be watching it who hasn't read the book. I felt like there were a few things missing. But it's beautifully filmed. Like if you're missing travel right now, it'd be a great movie to watch because they go to Italy. And Tembe Locke in real life married a man from Sicily. The book does talk about how she spends a lot of time in Sicily. So several of the episodes 
take place there. And it's very short. I think it's eight episodes long. So it's an easy one to binge. Let's just say that. So Tembe Locke and her sister Attica Locke, who's also an author in her own right and has done a lot of writing for television, are the producers and writers for it. So I enjoyed it a lot. Very cool. Yeah. And then I also had a Couch Biblio adventure I wasn't expecting to have, which was watching the closing celebration for the National Ambassador for Young People's Literature, Jason Reynolds, out of the Library of Congress. It was one of those YouTube wormholes that I went down, and there it was. And he's been the ambassador for three years, which is unusual, but his tenure started right as COVID hit. Mm. And so he just wasn't getting to accomplish as much as he wanted, so he stayed on longer. What an interesting impressive man and it was a sweet ceremony because they had two young kids I think like an 11th grader and 8th grader came out and interviewed him for about half an hour and that was really sweet that's very cool yeah and it showed just the ease he has with kids which I really appreciated and then he spoke and then they showed a video with kids thanking him and stuff so it's about an hour hour and 15 minutes it's very feel-good If you're looking for something nice to watch, I'll put a link in the show notes so you can find it. And I did try to do a little reconnaissance to see who the next ambassador is going to be because he took the mantle from Jacqueline Woodson. I couldn't figure it out, Okay, but I'm sure it'll be announced soon. You have any planned upcoming jaunts? I have a couch biblio adventure that I'm looking forward to, and that is the adaptation of Octavia Butler's novel kindred i'm looking forward to that i love that novel so much it's one of my favorites it'll be really fascinating to see how they depict everything yeah i mean it has great potential because it's got all those sci-fi elements of being really good or (laughs) i know i mean it's and it's a tricky subject for those of you who are not familiar with the novel it's about an african-american woman in the 70s i believe who gets transported back in time to 1830s Maryland. So she is an enslaved woman during that time period. And she's repeatedly rescuing this white boy. I won't say any more about that. I don't want to give any spoilers. But um, I just thought it was so well done. Yeah, and she kind of gets she kind of gets sucked out of time. Yeah, you know, her current life back in time. So I think that'll be interesting too yeah. to see how they handle that. And she doesn't understand why right. or how or what's going on. And her partner, she's standing there talking with him. They moved into this new apartment and they're standing there and all of a sudden she's gone and he's right. like, what the? Yeah. And I think when she comes back, it has only been a few minutes for him. But for her, obviously, this huge thing had just happened. Right. So yeah, I look forward to that. And I have thoughts about rereading the novel before watching it, but I think I might just watch it, Mm -hmm. you know, straight on. Ooh, I'll be curious Mm -hmm. to see what you think of that, because I saw that also. I also have a Couch Biblio adventure to watch Bullet Train, which I didn't know until I was talking to Aunt Ellen, is based on the novel Maria Beetle by Kotara Isaka, and that's translated from the Japanese by, I'm going to totally butcher this name, Iri Pramastinintias. And I really want to read the book first. Mm-hmm. But then it's 450 pages. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the movie's getting great reviews. So I might just watch the movie and then if I'm so inspired, read the book. Yeah. 
do the audio version. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll look for that. That's a great idea. And then we have a joint jaunt. We're planning to go to the Harriet Beecher Stowe House up in Hartford. Yes, I can't wait. It's been a while since I've been there, and they've had a major renovation. And a new executive director. Yeah. I did get on Project Gutenberg her short story, The Pearl of Oars Island, A Story of the Coast of Maine which I'm excited to read. I guess it's a romance. Oh, nice. Yeah. And she's well known for writing Uncle Tom's Cabin, which I did read a long time ago. Yeah, I read it too. I remember liking it more than I thought I would. And then I did participate one year. They did a readathon of it, you know, round the clock type Mm -hmm. thing and equalizing to see people struggle with the dialect because it's hard to read. I mean, and it is a hard novel. Some of the scenes are hard to read. And so Mm -hmm. to be reading it out loud to a room full of people is challenging. And I wonder if they're going to do that again. I think that's something that they used to do every other year or every third year, but I haven't seen them announce it in a while. Yeah, I was on the site and I didn't see anything about it. But Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's been COVID. So it's hard to know. Maybe it'll come back. Yeah, Yeah. it's hard to know. Yeah. That book changed the course of the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And her house is right next to the Mark Twain house, which we have visited. And we saw the Harriet Beecher Stowe house around the corner when we were there last time. Well, he moved there because of her. Right. It was all part of this experimental community where a bunch of very progressive people moved and were doing things in the world. And he visited and really liked it and then built his what he thought was going to be his forever home. Right. So we're going to go have a day there once Chris is done with class at the end of this week. (laughs) Get some good food. It's near a neighborhood with a lot of really good restaurants. So we'll have to choose something good to eat as well. Yeah. And maybe go see Riverbend's new bookshop, which is not far. I would totally be amenable to that. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Twist my arm. (laughs) Do you have any upcoming reads? Well... I'm holding in my hands the new Louise Penny. It has such a beautiful cover. Yeah, A World of Curiosities. It is a really neat cover. It has a a watch, you know, an old gentleman's watch that's opened. The case is opened. There's a little ladybug on it. I love ladybugs. So I don't know the first thing about it. I have been avoiding all reviews I haven't even opened the book to like read the jacket copy or anything. Yeah. And I know it's on the New York Times bestseller list. It's doing very well. I have not read detailed reviews, but I have read that people are loving it. Yeah. And it got a ton of starred reviews. Yeah. You know, which is not an easy feat Mm -hmm. for a book that is, what is this? Is it the 16th or? Oh, I was going to say the 19th. 19th? Yeah. I don't remember how many she is in at this point. But that's an amazing feat to get starred reviews when you are that many books in, because sometimes around that, that's when series start dying. Right. So it's good to see this. Or sometimes I think it's when the author does decide to write just a standalone and give themselves a break from the series. Right. Which she did do that one with Hillary Rodham Clinton, which I read. Mm -hmm. But I was telling Chris before we mic'd up that I think I might just step in and read this one. I read the first book in the series and then it's just felt so overwhelming because there's so many. And I think I'm just going to throw caution to the wind. Maybe that's going to be my 2023 theme. And just start stepping into series right at the end. Yeah, right? (laughs) You can. That would be interesting. Just do it. Or just start with one in the middle and see where it takes you. Rock my own world. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh my goodness. Well, the book I'm looking forward to starting is Moonrise Over New Jessup by Jamila Minix. This book is coming out on January 10th, my birthday. Yay. And um, it is the winner of the 2021 Penn Bellwether Prize for Socially Engaged Fiction. This is a prize that the author Barbara Kingsolver started, and it's given every year to a U.S. citizen for a previously unpublished work of fiction that addresses issues of social justice. It's getting good reviews. I don't know much about it, but I've always wanted to read one of the Penn Bellwether Award winners because I think that's such a cool idea, the prize. And it's out from Algonquin. Thank you to Algonquin for providing us with an early copy. More to come on that one. Well, next up, we're going to talk about our read-along selection, our last one of the year, Murder on the Red River by Marcy R. Rendon. Yeah, and I just want to say I've really enjoyed this year. All four books that we chose as our read-alongs were different, and I'm really glad that we chose this as our theme for the year. Yeah, it was Indigenous writers, Indigenous women writers Mm -hmm. was our theme, and It's harder than you would think to pick four books. It is. (laughs) You know, four books that are different. I guess part of the thing of choosing a theme was to explore all that a theme could have to offer in the world of books. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. And we did toy with doing some nonfiction reading. We ended up not doing that, which is fine. And I think part of why we decided not to is because we focused on nonfiction as our read-along theme last year. Last year, right. Yeah. So next year, we might shake it up again and have some nonfiction as well as fiction. More to come on that. We're going to announce the theme on the episode that drops on January 3rd. So stay tuned. If you're a newsletter subscriber, maybe we're going to drop it early. Yeah, you'll probably hear about it in late December. Yeah. So another reason to join the newsletter if you haven't already. And that is completely free. Yes. We will never charge for our newsletter. Never. Nope. And we only send out one a month. Right. So Murder on the Red River is the first book in the Cash Black Bear Mystery series. The second book is Girl Gone Missing. The third is Sinister Graves. They're all available now from Soho Press. The Murder on the Red River, the first book in the series, is available as a Passport to Crime paperback edition. It's $9.99. There's also an older edition published by a previous publisher that might be available at your library as this one also might be available at your library. Right. Yeah. We had a wonderful read along discussion with some listeners on the zoom call and a couple of people had that original edition from the prior publisher, which was neat to see. It was neat to see. And then some people had also listened to the audiobook and enjoyed that as well and said the narrator was really great. Yeah. I primarily listened to it on audio Towards the end, I picked up the book a little bit more, and that was a really great experience because I caught a weird thing and that a character name changes, Yeah, which was really surprising. And then just even listening along when you're reading along, you see how this might have been a change from uh, the audio is from the original edition from that first publisher. And then I'm reading the Soho Press edition where things were edited and you can see that you can see how sentence structure changes or how information is dropped down a couple lines later. Really interesting. Yeah, yeah. 
So let's give a little quick background. First of all, we want to remind people this is a read along. So we might do some spoilers as we talk about it. And when we talk about it with Marcy. Also, if you still want to have a conversation about the book, you can do that over on Goodreads. We have a thread going there where you can talk about the book anytime you want with other listeners. Yeah, I know Lisa piped in recently. I mean, several people did. And and she mentioned having visited the area, uh, the Red River Valley. Yeah, that's one thing I wanted to start with. Listeners said this, and I felt the same way when I was reading it. It's very of place. It's near Fargo, North Dakota. The Red River runs through there. It's known for an area where even though they have a short growing season, they do grow food there. And being part of that culture is important to the character of Cash Black Bear. And I just wanted to read this one little snippet where farmers talk about the land. They refer to the soil as black gold. So while the growing season this far north was short, usually from May to August, with potato and beet harvest going into September and October, this part of the country, this country that Cash called her own, was known to the locals as the breadbasket of the world. I just loved that, the way that Marcy described that. Yeah, and it's set in 1970, so different time period, which I appreciated. I think it um, it added a lot to what was possible communication-wise. Mm-hmm. And then also, as I think Marcy said in the interview, it's like what she knew. It's her coming-of-age time period. So Cash, her name is Renee mm-hmm. Black Bear, and she's 19 years old, and she gets this nickname Cash from the work that she does on all these different farms. And she's tough. Mm-hmm. You know, she's 19. She's been living on her own since she was, what, 16, 16. or 17? Yeah, Um. She- She was part of the foster care system. Yes, she was moved around quite a lot. And so you do get the background on just how tough that kind of life is on a kid. But she's always had a bit of a protector. The local sheriff, who's named Wheaton, he knew Cash's mom. And one of the questions people had during the conversation was, what does he know? Does he know a lot more about the mom's history and life? And why does he take on this kind of, you know, he's not a caretaker of her, but he always keeps an eye on her at these different homes where she is, because apparently she's in a county system. And as the sheriff, he knows everyone, right, can keep an eye on her. And he does definitely help care for her in the sense that he gives her a bicycle, which is a passport to freedom for her, right? He does little things at key moments to make sure that she's taken care of. Right. And then he does become more of a caretaker in the sense that as a teenager, he signs a lease for her and has her in her own place to get away from situations Mm -hmm. in the foster care system. So I really like that relationship. And I look forward to reading the next books in the series to see how that develops. Yeah. And then she ends up as she gets older, helping him certain times when he's on an investigation, because cash is blessed with the ability to see visions and the future or the past. Right. Yeah, it's interesting because she has out-of-body experiences. And then she also has dreams and visions that help her, Mm -hmm. that lead her to things. And it seemed very believable to me. I mean, I know that this is part of the indigenous tradition, but I really thought it was believable. Yeah. It didn't take me out of the story. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah. So there is a murder that takes place in this book. The murder isn't really 
as important, I don't think, as the character development and the sense of place. We talked about that a lot on our Zoom discussion, but there is definitely a murder. I didn't really care that much about the murder. I cared a lot about Cash. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, to me, it was more about the character, for yeah. sure. There just happened to be this murder. I was more interested in her and concerned about her. Yeah. And I liked her, you know, I, I mean, too. she's tough. She's on her own. She's drinking and smoking and playing pool, which is pretty much what I did in my late teens. <laughs> so I could really relate to her in that regard. Yeah. And the cast of characters that she comes into contact with and who she is. I mean, even one of the very opening scenes when she's going into the Casbah, which is the bar where she plays a lot of pool, and her hair is so long that if she doesn't grab her hair, it might get caught in the screen door as it slaps closed. Right. Here I just said I don't really picture people as I'm reading, <laughs> but oh, I just love the idea of her and that and she's tough, but she's also, you know, she's still feminine and she's got this aspect to who she is. And it's unusual that she's walking into this bar to play pool with all these big glugs. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, the thing is, she's playing pool to make money right. to live, to yeah. support herself. Yep. And there is the indigenous tradition of long hair, mm -hmm. which her hair is paralleled to some of the indigenous men who are coming back from Vietnam, mm -hmm. who are letting their hair grow out because it had to be shaved for the military. Right. So there's that. But yeah, so she is living in this gruff world of older men who are working the farms, and she knows them all and they know her. Mm -hmm. But she does travel around to different places to play pool. Yeah. And she has a system, you know, to kind of lull guys into thinking like, yeah, she's just some woman who thinks she knows how to play pool. And then, you know, yeah, she'll lose on purpose a couple times and right. then collect her money later in the evening. <laughs> right. And drink and smoke the whole time she's doing it. Yeah, that came up a lot. Like some of the folks we were talking with were like, oh, my God, like she didn't eat, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, I think about when you're younger, what you can do to your body and your body keeps going. And now it's just like, oh, I could just feel my stomach hurting yeah. or feeling nauseous from smoking so much. Well, it reminded me of the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series where all they do is smoke and drink coffee, <laughs> yes. which I didn't drink coffee at the time. I still mostly don't drink coffee and I've never smoked. But boy, I wanted to do both when I was reading those books. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I did feel that way reading these books. But I don't know. Is there anything else? We don't want to spoil too much. Yeah. I mean, it is like Emily said, it's a, a read along. So we do spoil a little bit because the expectation is people have read it and, and want to have some engagement about it. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I really liked how she related to kids and how easy she was mm, with kids. Yeah. And I think that's directly related to her still being young herself. She's only 19, but just knowing how lonely kids can be mm -hmm. from her own experience Yeah, that she just has an ease of talking with children because she doesn't fear them. And I wonder too, like if that has anything to do, she had siblings that were taken and she's lost touch with them as well. So I just wonder sometimes about when you're in a family system where there are siblings, you're older or younger, just how that can sometimes traumatize you towards other children. Mm -hmm. You yeah. know? Yeah. And, yeah. and maybe as the only kid in the house, although she wasn't always, mm -hmm. you know, that that helped her see other children differently. Yeah. Or, the backstory on that is there are some interactions she has, particularly with a family that suffers a trauma. And she comes to a household that has a lot of children in it and the way that she interacts with them and is 
soft and kind with them and also understands the potential risk that they might have of entering the foster care system. So there's a portion of the story that's about that. Right, yeah. But as you're talking, actually, what made me realize, and I didn't think about this the whole time everyone was talking about how the mystery, it's not a whodunit at all. Like you're not spending the whole time trying to figure out what happened. But really, to me, the mystery of the book is Cash herself Mm -hmm. and her family and feeling, oh, there's so much more to that story and what did happen to her siblings and what did happen to her mom and who is this sheriff? You have to think he's come across a lot of bad situations like why Cash? What is it about Cash that intrigues him and that they have this continued relationship with and that he took the extra steps with her that you can't probably do with everybody that comes across your path. Right. And she wonders about him, too, Mm -hmm. because, you know, she's trying to figure him out because so many of the white guys, they have those classic farmer tan lines where they're white as a bone, (laughs) where there's not clothing when they're out in the field, especially like the forehead Mm -hmm. tan. But when Wheaton takes his hat off, she's like, oh, he's not completely white Mm -hmm. up there on his forehead. So what is his background? Who are his people? Right. So when we asked, when we polled the around 20 people that were on this Zoom call with us, who's going to read the next book in the series, or maybe all three, everybody's hands went up, and a couple people already had. Right. So I was happy to see that. I'm in the same court. I definitely am going to pick up the other two. And maybe some of those questions will be answered. Right, exactly. I mean, what we did learn, not necessarily so much with this conversation with Marcy, but when we first met Marcy back in the fall at the Soho event, she is someone who's very involved politically with the indigenous people. And she's certainly taking the opportunity with her books to help educate us about that. And I felt that way too when I was reading this book. And I think I can just tell by the titles of the other two books that certainly that is part of what she's trying to do with her writing. Yeah. And there's also just some really great time specific stuff in the books, getting a phone, you know, I don't want to give too many spoilers. But like, if you're of a certain age, and you read this book, you'll have like, Oh, yeah, I remember that, right? (laughs) You'll have a couple of those moments. Yeah. So we really enjoyed reading Murder on the Red River. We're both planning to read the next two books in the series. Reminder, that's Girl Gone Missing and Sinister Graves. Enjoy our conversation with Marcy. So let's talk about Murder on the Red River. Cash Black Bear is the main character. And we were wondering how you came up with the character of Cash Black Bear and particularly how you chose to give her the ability to have dreams and visions. And I thought what I might do is just read in Murder on the Red River the first time we kind of learn about Cash and the history of her visions. Okay. Cash took a long drag of her cigarette. She tried to remember the first time she had experienced leaving her body. In one foster home, she'd been forced to sit for hours on a chair as punishment for one infraction or another. One day, in the middle of a daydream, She floated out of her body and into the yard where her foster mother was hanging men's work jeans on the line. Freaked out, she thudded back into her body on the chair, wondering what in the heck had just happened. I had written some crime novels and they weren't any good and I knew that. And so I thought, okay, well, I can't write crime. I'm going to write a more fluff piece about a young woman who goes to Nashville and breaks into the music industry. 
And as I was working on that, like literally Cash as a character appeared. And this whole other story started pouring out, which became Murder on the Red River. And as long as I was writing that, I could tell that it was working. So that's how Cash came to be. It's not like I sat down and designed her. She just more or less appeared to me. As characters do for writers sometimes, a funny thing to explain. Kind of like the sitting on the chair and going out of your body. So I think that many of these characteristics that Cash has, whether it's the out-of-body experience or the dreaming or the just sensing things, I think that almost all humans have those abilities, but they're kind of educated out of us here in the Western world. You know, like we're told to just think and that those things are just to be poo-pooed or they're not scientific or whatever, whatever. But in Native communities, I think there's a lot more respect given to people's intuitive abilities. And so it didn't seem strange at all to me as the writer to write these things. But I've gotten a lot of questions, you know, about, well, how did this happen? It happens. And it's much more acceptable, I think, in our communities, or at least in my community and family, than I see in some other parts of the world. You know, another question that somebody had last night, we were talking about the mystery aspect of it and how the title is Murder on the Red River. So, boom, you know, it's, it's going to be a mystery of some kind. The question was, was that always your working title for the novel? Or how did the title come to be? I... So on Murder on the Red River, which is the first in the series, and Girl Gone Missing, which is the second in the series, I had no idea how to title it. And almost everything I write is untitled because I have a a block when it comes to titles. So the marketing people at the publishers sent me a list of 20 titles, narrowed it down to 10. They went back to their marketing people, came back, and that's how the title was decided. With my newest novel, Sinister Graves, I called it that from the time I started writing it. And so that became the title. But mostly I've relied on the publishing editor to help me figure out titles because I kind of go, eh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a great segue because we were wondering, you know, we met you in Rhode Island at the Soho dinner that was so lovely. And They talked a lot about how the first two novels were published with a different publisher. So what was that experience like to work with two different publishers, but in the same series? Well, you know, the first publisher was a small independent publisher who then sold to a larger publisher, but they mainly do children's books. And these aren't children's books. And so it was my agent, Jackie Lipton, who went to Soho and pitched all three books, you know, the two that had already been published and then the new one, which was unpublished. Both, I have no complaints in terms of editing and all of that with either one. You know what I love about Soho is their covers. Yes. yes. They match. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh my goodness. Yeah, they're, they look they're beautiful. Way. Yeah, their covers are amazing. And then both editors really let me, the, the original publishing company and then Soho, they let me tell my story as a Native person. There were some questions, there were some things that they wanted more clarity on, but it it was just a really easy process in both places in order to have the stories 
published. It was it was all good, really. Oh, it's great to hear. Right, oh, yeah, the- this is something, Marcy. I was listening to the audio version for most of the book, and then I sat down, and I was doing the thing where you listen and read at the same time. Okay. And I noticed that there were some some differences, because I guess what I was listening to was the 2017 publication from your first publisher, and then I'm reading the new Soho edition. So there were some sentence-level differences, some rearrangement And then at one point, there were different character names. Tell me the difference in names. Well, it was um, Malcolm Luther is the name in the Soho edition, and it's on page 228. And then in the audio version, it was Svensson. Oh, it was Clyde Svensson. Well, you know, I have never listened to the audio of any of them, partly because I can't. It's just hard for me to hear my own stuff over and over and over again. So the book that I have, it says Clyde Swenson, but in... Oh, that's so interesting. interesting. So I'm going to look at my copy. On 228? Yeah. Yeah, it says Malcolm Luther. Yeah, Malcolm Luther on mine. Can I see the cover of yours? Is it the exact same book? Yeah. And here, I don't know if you can see it. Here, there's the little tab by the name. Wow. Wow. No, the audio version said Clyde Svensson. Right. And that would have been with the original publisher and whoever they hired to do the audio. Right. We were just wondering if there was something about the name that was objectionable to the publisher or something. No, I don't know. I will ask them about this. This is very interesting. You're right. We don't want to give spoilers, but I was thinking that Svensson sounded a little too like white Minnesota, and maybe it would have been confusing where the person was from. But yeah. Luther sounds so British, <laughs> right? I don't know. That's kind of funny. Oh, Malcolm Luther. Oh, Malcolm Mal- Luther. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is terrible. <laughs> is this the only time this name is <laughs> See, you know what? I don't know that, Marcy, because I was just listening, like maybe the last third of the book yeah. is when I started looking at the the book and then listening. It would be interesting to go back through. Yeah, that's so interesting. Or to get the E version and, you know, search by that name. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a mystery within yeah, the mystery. a mystery within the mystery. I was going to say the same thing. I think that in, and I'm not sure that it's in this version, in one of the books, of Murder on the Red River, one of the versions, one of the print copies, I have that Red Lake Reservation is southwest of Fargo, which is totally wrong. It's northeast instead of northwest. And so in one of the print versions, I asked them to go back in and correct the direction. Um, But we never caught that until after the book had gone to publication. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Marcy, with the audio, did you have any say or participation in the narrator? With the original Murder on the Red River and Girl Gone Missing, again, I was given a choice of maybe five readers and I listened to them and then sent them back my best choice. And yeah, So that's how that process was done. And then the publisher or the audio company actually decided who would read. But I don't know those final details. On Sinister Mm -hmm. Graves, the most recent novel, I gave them the name of Isabella LeBlanc, who's a Dakota actress. And she did the reading on the audio for Sinister Graves. So in that one... They just took my first choice, I guess. Yeah. Well, we had two listeners who participated last night that due to visual impairments, 
read purely via audiobook. Good, yeah. And one of them, Sharon, was talking about how amazing she thought the narrator was. Good. And she had an impression of the book that was kind of interesting. Yeah, she talked about how for her, like what really came through was this sense of claustrophobia, that Cash was in such a small community and her her life was kind of small in terms of being contained Mm -hmm. in in that way. And, And so we were wondering if you had any, you know, comments about that, this sense of claustrophobia. So where I, as the author, feel Cash's claustrophobic is in places like in the grocery stores or at the college campus. Um, not like when she's out in the fields, there's just so much more space. And I mean, it's like you can see forever there in the Red River Valley. So the, I'm not sure that I would describe it as claustrophobia so much as there's a university class here in the Twin Cities that studies murder on the Red River, and they're studying Cash's PTSD. Oh, interesting. And I, I wouldn't describe it as claustrophobic, but because of the early trauma, she's more closed in just within herself. Mm-hmm. Something that as the author, I never even thought about until I was invited to go speak at this class. <laughs> and they're saying, no, she's got PTSD. And it's like, Oh, yeah, you're right. She does. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I bet you that's probably what Sharon was zooming in on. Yeah. yeah. What an interesting experience for you as an author to have people read it and interpret the book differently than you thought when you were writing. Well, you know, I am, and I've said this so many times, all I, my initial intention ever was, was to write a good crime or mystery that people would pick up, read from beginning to end, you know? I wasn't trying to do a big native education thing or here's native life, but there are so many themes that run through Murder on the Red River in the following books that readers are talking about these issues, whether it's the Indian Child Welfare Act, um, you know, the boarding school issue, the missing and murdered Indian women the graves around the boarding schools up across Canada. And we haven't even started to look down here in the States. You know, so these are issues that these crime novels are are bringing up and opening the door for non-Native people to have conversation about. Yeah. And I yeah. hadn't anticipated any of that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, one of the questions that came up last night in the conversation was, your choice for setting it during the Vietnam era. We were all speculating about why and what you were able to to write about and then bring in because there's the character uh, Longbraids. Yes. Who, you know, he's going to be leaving to join the, the Indian rights movement. Okay. So um, we were wondering if you could talk a little bit about the choosing that time period. So again, it was like this character cash appeared along with a whole story. And as long as I was writing the story, I could tell it was working. And it, that story was set in this time period. Now, when I look back, I think how the early seventies was a pivotal time for native people in terms of it was the rise of the American Indian movement, the rise of sovereign Indian education movement across the United States and Canada. So like Native people say, no, we're going to take charge of our education. We're going to take charge of our health care. We're going to take charge of, um, you know, these treaty rights that have been totally broken. And 
So it was a pivotal for us as Native people. Mm -hmm. It was also a time here in the United States where it was the women's movement. It was the Vietnam War protests. It was the civil rights movement. It was the rise of La Raza. You know, so there was a lot happening historically that informed that time period and still impact people today. Yeah. Just this morning, I woke up and I pulled up Facebook and there was a recording of Helen Reddy singing I Am Woman. Yeah, love her. <laughs> what a difference between that song and so much of the songs about women that are on video or whatever today. Like mm -hmm. different message, different time. So I didn't yeah. necessarily choose this time. It, it was more like this is how the story happened mm. because I could tell it was working. I just kept going with it. Yeah. Emily and I were talking this morning. We like some of those small details that are historically of that time, like registering for classes where you had to actually show up and stand in line <laughs> and choose your classes and hopefully got into what you wanted. It's just so, that is so different, too, with the, the rise of computers and the Internet. The phone that she gets. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> <laughs> So another thing, just kind of nuts and bolts about the reading, and you implied this, that you wanted people to just be able to pick the book up and read it through. And right away, that made me think about the experience also of there's no chapter breaks in the novel. Can you talk about that? So I am not an educated writer. Like I didn't, I don't have an MFA in literature. I didn't study writing. And so when I write the books, I just write them. In the beginning, it was not a conscious choice to not have chapters. I just wrote the story. Hmm. And, you know, a, a thing like this with a Native women's book club, and it's Native women from across the United States who all get together and read books. And it was Murder on the Red River. And they had read the book. They loved it. And they, too, mentioned that there weren't any chapters. And I said, well, I could try to figure out how to put chapters in. And they said, no, no, no. <laughs> Start a movement, hashtag no chapters. <laughs> and I'm sure you're familiar with Angeline Bowie, mm -hmm. Firekeeper's daughter. Her father read my books. And what he said is, this is like Native storytelling. Mm. And so you're just telling the story. But none of that was planned on my part. Well, it really adds to the story, I think. And a lot of what we felt reading it and what our listeners said, too, is it's such a character study and you get such a sense of place. Mm -hmm. The writing is so beautiful. So even if you think you're not a trained writer, your writing <laughs> is spectacular. Yes. So none of that matters. Yeah. There wasn't any time where I felt like anything pulled me out of the story. It just seems so tight and just yeah. such a strong story. Yeah. So um, mentioning your writing, we always like to ask writers about their writing process. Like, where do you write and when do you write and what kind of tools do you use? Do you write in longhand or computer? Almost everything I do these days is on computer. And this is what you see behind me. This is it. <laughs> this is my, you know, my writing spot in my life. Other than when I can get these residencies and that's where I get big chunks of my writing done, you know, because there's zero interruptions. I can crank out 2000 plus words a day, which doesn't happen here at home. You know, the grandkids call, I got to deal with this little dog. I got to go to this appointment or this meeting. And so I write some every day, 
And right now I have book four going. I have a contemporary standalone novel that I'm working on. I have a children's book that I'm working on. And I have a play about missing and murdered Indian women that I'm working on. And so I kind of go back and forth between all of the things. And depending on what the deadline is, that's the one that gets my most attention at any given time. So that's like my writing process. Again, I think it's because I'm a parent. I've always had children or grandchildren living with me. So a lot of my process is writing these things in my head so that when I sit down at the computer, I can just like spit it out. That's a really impressive skill because I know for me, if I'm moving my body, like if I'm taking a walk or if I'm taking a swim, things will come to me and I think, oh, I could write a whole essay about this. And then I'm done with that activity and it's gone. Like I sit in front of the computer, I can't access it. So how do you do that? Well, I, th- I think I imagine little file cabinets in my brain. <laughs> <laughs> you know that's a great image open one right <laughs> the other thing that i do well when i'm writing you know like when i'm sitting here typing if an idea comes to me on one of the other stories or something for later in the book i will write it on like a post-it and stick it on the wall um, okay. Yeah. So that's a little memory jag. Like, look at that. And it, you hope that it opens the right file cabinet. <laughs> I'm a very strong believer that our brains are basically memory banks. And it's just anything that we've experienced, anything that we've seen, anything that we've done, it's in here someplace. We just got to find the right file. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's interesting, too, because I think that's part of, you know, getting back to Cash and her ability to have visions and how you were talking about in the Native community, that is something that's been accepted Mm -hmm. for years. You know, I think that some of it is about how willing are we to spend time searching through all of the parts and abilities of our brain, or not even searching, but being open to what our minds can do. And your ability to access storytelling in your head, I think, is a very similar idea of of just being open to what comes, not being afraid of it. And I also meditate, mm. which I don't sit down and think, oh, let me think about my novel. But it's like clearing your brain of all of mm. this outside, which, again, is the thing about the writing residencies where there's solitude to actually hear my brain. Mm. Um but the meditating is a big part, being quiet. Drives my kids nuts because I don't have a radio or a television here. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a good way to get space. Yeah, brain space for sure. Well, yeah. and from the from the family. Yeah. yeah, go go watch those things somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> so are you a big crime fiction reader then? And do you have some favorites that you go back to or that were very influential on you? I almost never read anything twice. In fact, I never do. Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, I it's kind of like a book that I'll reread over and over. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the only one. Everything else, like I read crime, it's almost, I don't almost read anything else. For me, I think it's like other people watch Netflix. You know, like I just read and then I'm done. Mm-hmm. The same way that people binge on Netflix shows. So I love reading crime. My favorite, all-time favorite, I mean, I, Stephen King. I mean, he's one of my favorite authors. 
but I read a book, the Wallander series. Hmm. Yeah. Wasn't that, I think that was made into a television show, maybe. It has been on television, Henning Mancal. Oh, yeah. And I read one of those Wallander books. It's the only time I've ever gone online and ordered every single book. And I read them nonstop. It's like all I did for days was read those books. And it was like, what in the heck is the fascination here? Like, I still don't know. You know, you're interesting. Depressed Swedish guy plodding through the snow and <laughs> <laughs> like, the heck. You know, and I I read John Sanford because he's Minneapolis. He's here, and I like the way that in his stories, both him and Stephen King, their stories set and the place is an important part so when you read it you can feel like you're there and you you know the first time i went to maine it was like i'd been there before yeah mm -hmm. of all of the details about maine that are in stephen king's books and john sanford does some of the same about land here around the twin cities so i can't really pick i, I just read anything and everything it's yeah. <laughs> great i ordered on libya john grisham book and got like one fourth way through it and then it got pulled back oh. <laughs> <laughs> i have to reorder it and find my butt you know given my current author schedule i have had almost no time to read anything yeah i read shutter by ramona emerson that was yeah yeah. yeah, we'd love that one. Well, we don't want to put any pressure on you because we know you don't like to title things, but maybe you could just give us a hint as to when the fourth book in the series will be coming out. And if it has a title, share it with us. It does not have a title. It's <laughs> Ash 4 at the moment. <laughs> um, it's about a murder. And there's a young child who's abandoned. Abandoned? And then there's a a bad guy where it's, it's just sort of a cleanup from sort of a previous novel. It's not the main point of. Okay. And do you know, do you know when it's supposed to be coming out or is that still to be determined? I don't. Okay. Uh, you know, again, it's like I can finish writing it, but when is the publication? Right. Yeah. Well, you have a big fan club here with the book cougars and the book cougar listeners. When we asked for a show of hands of people last night, who was going to continue on with the series? Two people had already gone through all three, but everybody <laughs> raised their hands. <Yes>. So <laughs> thank you so much, Marcy, for your time and for your storytelling. We really appreciate it and you. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, come chat with us on social media. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, we would love to have you join our community. All of the books that we talked about in this episode are listed in the show notes, which you can find at bookcougars.com. Each book will link to our bookshop.org page where your purchase will help support not only the book cougars, but also independent bookstores everywhere. And if you're an audiobook listener, we do have a special offer from Libro.fm. You can find all of this information on our website. Again, that's bookcougars.com. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> this episode is edited by Pat Keo Sound Design.